Hey, greetings, everyone. Lieutenant Colonel Allen West here, and welcome to the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. Hi, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Allen West, and throughout my life, from military to public service, the right to bear arms responsibly has been a fundamental belief. That's why I stand with United Patriot Supply. They're redefining what it means to be a firearms dealer by combining the experience and know-how of a traditional gun shop together with the selection and pricing power of a modern e-commerce company. Stop by our flagship store in Seneca, Kansas, or visit us online at UnitedPatriotSupply.com. Hey, greetings, everyone. Welcome back to the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. You know, just recently, I had the opportunity to watch a new documentary called The Fall of Minneapolis. Because if you remember all of the riots and everything that occurred centered around the death of George Floyd, there's a lot of disinformation and misinformation out there. And of course, it seems to me that you can be on the left side and you can go out and burn down communities and police precincts. And that's perfectly acceptable. That's not an insurrection. So I thought that we'd have on the person that produced that documentary, and that is Liz Collin. Liz Collin is a multi Emmy Award winning reporter and news anchor. She is also a public speaker and media producer. Her work includes the Amazon bestseller, They're Lying, The Media, The Left, and The Death of George Floyd, October 2022, and the documentary, The Fall of Minneapolis, which came out last year, November. As a truth speaker for more than 20 years, Liz has given a voice to many who otherwise would have been kept silent, and her investigative reporting has led to the founding of new state laws. Liz is a Minnesota native who lives in the Twin Cities area with her husband, Bob, who is a U.S. Army veteran and a former Minneapolis police lieutenant and union leader. She has one adventurous son and a beautiful, loyal lab. Liz, thanks for joining us here at the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. Colonel, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Good to talk to you here again. Well, good. Please call me Alan, okay? And it was great to see you down here in Dallas uh, screening your documentary, The Fall of Minneapolis. But how did you get into the world of, you know, news and investigative journalism? Oh, gosh, how did I get into it? I, you know, it, it's uh, it's funny. I was uh, always a very, um, I say nosy, but perhaps I should uh, say, say <laughs> a, a bit better that um, I was curious. I was curious from a pretty early age and and really um, always like to hear about other people's backgrounds and their stories. And actually, I, I kind of became obsessed, as crazy as it sounds, uh, with the news uh, from the time I was five or six years old. And I started a, a newspaper when I was 10 with some friends mm -hmm. in the neighborhood. 
um, but was always really driven to to be a television uh, reporter and anchor. It's what I told people um, I always wanted to be when when I grew up. And um, you know, as far as the investigations are concerned, they always take a lot more more time and, and more effort. But I really always loved working on you know several different things things at once and really getting to the bottom of things and and helping people um, you know better understand uh, the the world around them. You know, when you look at Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, you know that area. It is not exactly a strong bastion of, you know, conservatism. What was it like for you being a journalist, which definitely holds more of a conservative uh, principle and values in your heart, being in that area, being in that news media uh, area? Yeah, good, good question. You know, it's interesting, too, you know, growing up in kind of small town uh, Minnesota where I did where I did grow up. Uh, it seems many of us never even talked about politics. I mean, I always say even even growing up, I really wasn't even aware of my uh, parents' po political leanings. And and now um, just to see how polarized uh, thing, things have become. Um, but I but I say, too, this really isn't so much uh, for me. I was never a political person as a journalist. You know, I never thought that was um, too appropriate. I've really been a, a, a sort of a fact finder and uh, foc focused on the truth more than anything, anything else. Um, so to see, really, it was the, the left that took over um, all of this uh, in, in the wake of, of George Floyd's uh, death. And, and, you know, that's why I say this isn't necessarily a, a fight against Republicans, Democrats, whatever. This is truly evil, um, in, in my opinion, what, what I saw. And I think the facts uh, point, point to that as well, where all of these, you know, so-called leaders could go ahead and get away with these lies. Yeah, you know, that's the amazing part of it. You know, as I sat there and watched your documentary, it was an amazing to me all of the, the facts that you presented, could, irrefutable, and you were able to back it up. But tell us, how, could, how was it that you were able to get a hold of all of the actual body cam video from different angles of the police that were there uh, on that day? Yeah, you know, the line really started... Uh, you know, from from really moment one with all of this, this is the very first time in Minneapolis police history that that body camera footage is withheld from the public, you know, under normal circumstances and any, you know, critical incident that would be released in very short order. Um, so you sort of knew there was a reason uh, that they kept this hidden, hidden for nearly two and a half months uh, before those body cameras uh, came out. And that was only because a, an international news agency leaked them uh, to to the public. Uh, which was uh, quite quite interesting, but but we were able to to get the the body camera footage was then all attached to the court case and became part of the the public file. But again, I still say to this day, um, Alan, I don't feel I don't feel that you know you've earned the colonel uh, rep <laughs> the uh. title for sure. So I don't feel comfortable calling you that. But um, but they went ahead and um, you know kept kept this hidden. If they would have just went ahead and went walked frame by frame. Fully, I think, explained what the officers were doing, what George Floyd was saying, what he, what he wasn't saying, you know, et cetera. I just don't think we'd even be here having this conversation today. You know, one of the interesting cover-ups that I saw looking at is not, not just the, the video camera evidence from all the different angles, but the level of fentanyl and drugs that were in his body. Why, again, how can you have these quote-unquote forensic experts hiding evidence. And if I'm correct, a lot of this evidence was not allowed to be admissible into the trial. 
Yeah, so also something that, that stood out very early on um, in this case is you have George Floyd's autopsy done within 12 hours of, of his death. But again, that information is not um, not made public. Instead, you have these you have these meetings happening behind the scenes that are well documented, which is what we use uh, in in the book, which is called uh, "They're Lying: The Media, the Left, and the Death of George Floyd." And then we have you know just some of those that are used in the documentary. Actually, the book goes into greater detail as to what's happening behind the scenes with again the Hennepin County Medical Examiner and prosecutors, and also the FBI uh, is in on those meetings too in the, those days that follow. Which is then when you have of sort of this changing narrative that the public then hears about for the first time nearly a week later when they release the official autopsy on the same day uh, that George Floyd's family releases their own autopsy, which the media touts as an independent autopsy. Um, but but yeah, you're right. Those um, results showing there's three times the lethal amount of, of fentanyl in George Floyd's systems, system methamphetamine. Uh, you know, sadly, he has a, a bad heart. Uh, there's a, a pelvic tumor that many have said required much more testing. Um, you know, medical professionals have de described George Floyd as, you know, a bit of a, a ticking time bomb. There were many issues going on. But yet you have um, these, these, you know, doctors hired by George Floyd's family talking uh, to the public about how he was a, a very healthy young man. Which was a complete lie among many of the lies that surround this. You know, one of the things that, that I found quite perplexing was the immediate FBI involvement in this. I mean, was that's not something that normally happens, would you say? No, um, and this is something I, um, you know, sort of heard about through through my husband being the, the union president at the time. Um, and you know, at that time, didn't think that much of it, but I think now what's what's come out over these last uh, you know few years uh, with the FBI and the you know the Department of Justice really being under the, the microscope, it is it is quite interesting. Um, never happened before where the FBI was called in um, within hours of this incident, in fact, uh, happening. Uh, and and the chief of police uh, at the time, Adair Arredondo, was his name. He has since re retired from the Minneapolis Police Department. But he's the one who told uh, Bob, my husband at the time, that he made the call. Um, and my husband questioned that, you know, why are you calling the FBI? All at this point we have is this, you know, Facebook video that was obviously getting a lot of attention uh, within just a, just a short amount of time. Um, but my my husband sort of pushing back, saying, "Aren't we going to look at the body camera footage? Aren't we going to, you know, sit down with these officers, et cetera?" But none of that, none of that, that was done. Un again, unlike uh, other cases from before. Complete violation of protocol, would you say? Oh, absolutely, and that's why I sort of, you know, documented this from from the beginning because that protocol was was not followed uh, from the beginning. So, which is why you can sort of see how this was able to to sort of shape uh, shape a narrative and how they kept so much of this uh, from the public to sort of manipulate the, the message they, they wanted out there. You know, you know a lot of folks are, are talking about what happened with the restraint technique. The, the chief of police lied about that restraint technique. I mean, that was in their police handbook. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, this was also in the very early days that um, that we have the police chief and and the mayor of Minneapolis, uh, Jacob Fry, uh, say to to the press during uh, several press conferences, "This is not how we train. We don't recognize what's what these you know officers are doing um, at 38th and Chicago to George Floyd." And then I go online, and you can easily see that there are these two missing pages uh, from the police manual 
two page, the only two pages I sh should mention that are gone that are just skipped over. Um, so again, this is like day day two um, after that. And this is when I kind of start this mantra that I kept shouting in my newsroom that they're lying uh, <laughs> because uh, you know they, they really they really were, and I didn't really fully understand. I think that the depths of, of those lies for some time you know the trial i think helped to hit that home too but you're right when the uh, police chief uh take, takes the stand he's under oath and the head of training does the same and and they both uh testify to say that that's mrt was not uh, a part of training even though it it's been uh in these uh police manuals that we found dating back uh, to the early 90s uh so so for decades and then talking to many officers for the documentary who have all been trained maximal restraint technique. Yeah. When you talk about the trial, one of the things that I found just absolutely unconscionable was the judge in the trial not allowing certain very important pieces of evidence to be admitted, uh, admissible into the trial. I mean, how can a judge do that? How, I thought that we're supposed to get to the truth and we are supposed to allow all evidence to be presented, but it seems that this judge was cherry picking what could be presented to the jury. Yeah, you know, it does seem in a way that the script was written before um, you know, the jury was even selected in Derek Chauvin's uh, trial. Uh, the judge, uh, Judge Peter Cahill is his name, who's still serving uh, in, in Hennepin County. Mm -hmm. He went ahead and said that he would not allow uh, the maximal restraint technique, that that training slide, to be shown to the jury because uh, it seemed that Derek Chauvin had not uh, signed his name in uh, the last time that that was uh, trained uh, for officers in in Minneapolis. So it was very nuanced. And even though Derek is telling his attorney, you know, I, I certainly trained, had been trained in this for. Um, you know, again, for, for decades. So that was the reason that the judge gave. So so you're right, again, that the jury was never even able to see that that training slide um, in, in Derek Chauvin's trial. And then the other thing was the selection of the jury. I mean, you're supposed to have an unbiased selection of the jury, but tell us about the questionnaire that went out there that many of these people were, were asked uh, if they had alignments or affiliations with Black Lives Matter or agree with Black Lives Matter. Yeah, there were there were many questions. In fact, actually, even the the uh, jury instructions really stood out as being uh, very different in in this case too. That was um, fourteen pages of of uh, jury instructions that they were given. You know, a, a typical case would perhaps be uh, one or two. Uh, so there were so many things, and many of that came out even after the the, the trial as well. Um, how there was a juror who was you know, marching in a Black Lives Matter uh, protest and, and lied about that, um, saying that he just wanted so badly to be a part of this uh, jury. So again, so many questionable uh, things uh, in, in you know, our, our so-called justice system. And I think Alex King, again, he's the black officer uh, who arrested George Floyd mm -hmm. that nobody wants to, you know, talk about, but uh, speaking to him in, in prison, and he simply says, you know, his narrative didn't didn't fit this whole thing uh which is why he was uh, quickly cast aside and and he talks about that do we really want our justice system to be ruled by mob mentality um and for the media to to manipulate us and he he's talking um you know very eloquently i think from from behind bars uh you know saying that uh we have to decide where we are as a as a country if this is how we want things to continue now, you talk about being behind bars. You also did an interview with Derek Chauvin from behind bars. 
and he just recently uh, was attacked uh, in, in jail, if I'm correct. You brought that out. Yeah, it was actually just about nine days um, after we released the documentary in, in the middle part of November um, that, shockingly, Derek Chauvin is stabbed 22 times uh, in this facility where he'd been for 15 months in, in Tucson, Arizona, medium security uh, prison system run by the, the, the federal government here. Um, this is a, a federal facility. And, uh, and this the guy who went ahead and, and attacked uh, Derek that day said that he was uh, doing it, you know, in, after uh, are doing it on Black Friday for Black Lives Matter. He's a, a former FBI informant uh, that I think is, is sort of struggling to to get back. Uh, uh, he's back in that same facility and in the medical unit, but is, you know, he'd been sort of working before this and had never had any issues um, at that prison before. You know, one of the things that they tried to paint these officers there on the scene is being uncaring about George Floyd, but they call for emergency medical support quite quickly after being engaging, uh, engaging him. And, and are we correct? And what was the essence of the delay that we saw for those EMS, EMT uh, people to arrive at the scene? Yeah, so you actually have Thomas Lane calling for that that ambulance uh, 36 seconds um, after George Floyd uh, is on the ground. Part of a timeline that that of course uh, the politicians did not did not pick up on, um, obviously. And then you have uh, Tutau, oh, who the crowd control. It's Derek Chauvin's partner that day. Um, he asks, uh, you know, a couple minutes later you know, did, did you call the ambulance? Because he's already questioning, you know, where are they at this point? And that's when he gets on the radio and, and tries to get the ambulance there even sooner. So they're recognizing that under normal circumstances, it would take two, three minutes tops uh, for an ambulance uh, to, to respond. And then you see the ambulance come about 10 minutes later, their lights and sirens are not on, uh, which which is strange. The, the fire department, which is actually perhaps the, the first rig that should have been on scene, uh, takes another 10 minutes uh, to respond, and they're going into Cup Foods looking for, for someone. Um, but from the, the public documentation, it just seems <clears throat> that there was some chatter about um, there was someone, you know, sort of, for better words, tattling on the officers that that then lost track of what was actually transpiring and waited uh, quite a while to get to get an ambulance there. And then you have the, the fire rig basically say that they um, you know, were dispatched to the wrong location and they didn't even know where they, they were. And they admit that on camera. All things that, again, the jury was never allowed uh, to hear in Derek Chauvin's trial. Amazing. You know, last thing, uh, last couple of things I want to talk to you about. The thing when I watched your documentary that really touched me was the trauma that those police officers went through. Watching their police precinct be, you know, completely turned over to the mob and be destroyed. And it kind of reminded me of that last scene uh, in Black Hawk Down, where some of the, uh, the Rangers had to run out of Mogadishu back to friendly lines. You had some of those officers that had to run. Some of them were, you know, in, uh, in vehicles. And, of course, they were being pelted with rocks and whatever. What type of depraved mentality would allow the mob to take over a, a, a structure that's supposed to stand for law enforcement. Hmm. Yeah, you know, that was um, probably the most difficult interviews um, 
to, to even get through because these officers had never seen that type of emotion, to be quite honest. And I've been a reporter for 20 years um, from, you know, members of law enforcement. Again, these are people and a lot of them had military backgrounds as well. Um, and that's why I think, you know, Minneapolis really did lose the best of the best when it came to their their police force. Um, but all of them broke down um in in tears and a lot of them did in very short order it wasn't like i interviewed them for hours on end um so this is just um you know so hard for them i think even several years later for them to wrap their head around uh how their careers uh ended and how they were scapegoated and and served up uh to the mob and and many of them you know recounting this how they're basically running for their lives and and, you know, you hear in the documentary how they're they're turned down again and again. They can't use any type of, of force um, on these, you know, so-called uh, peaceful protesters when that certainly was not the case. They're in, there's yeah. many injuries. Um, and it's, it was really, um, you know, sad, I think, to, to, to hear those stories for sure. Closing thought, the aftermath now in Minneapolis. How, how has the George Floyd incident, which we know was an incredible cover-up, lies, deceit, deception. How has that changed Minneapolis? Yeah, you know, there, there's a reason I think that we, we called um, the documentary The Fall of, of Minneapolis, because you really can point um, to those those days as, as leading to where we are now. Um, and that is uh, cars stolen in, in record numbers, carjackings that were never even, they were never even tracked before. There were hundreds of those every year in Minneapolis. You have a police force that was nearly uh, 900 uh, officers strong uh, back in the early days of May of 2020. That number has dwindled to barely 500 um, mm -hmm. at this point, but all of their policies have been rewritten, so they can't really even do much as far as uh, police work is is concerned. But many people relocating, moving out of the city, um, many places that people just won't go uh, in, in the city anymore. And that includes, you know, the downtown area, the uptown area of Minneapolis. And it's sad to see, you know, I actually owned a home in Minneapolis for, for nearly a dozen years and, um, you know, love, love the city. Um, but, but again, the, the crime has, has really uh, touched, you know, before it would be, you know, your friends, uncles, cousins, sister, that type of thing. And then all of a sudden it becomes your friend and then it's, and then it's you. I mean, that's how close that, um, you know, the, these uh, stories hit, hit close to home. And at Alpha News, where I am now in, um, in Minnesota, we bring out a lot of those uh, victims because, sadly, the, you know, many of them have lost their voice in all of this, too. Incredible. Liz Collin, where can people follow you? How can people, you know, have you come to their city and do a screening of the fall of Minneapolis? Yeah, so everything is on uh, thefallofminneapolis.com. Uh, we have our our different interviews we've we've done and, and news articles. Uh, there's also all of our research there for the documentary. You know, people like to paint me as some sort of crazy conspiracy theorist, uh, but our great um, director and and writer, Dr. J.C. Shea, has posted all of the the research there that we've worked on for for several years. And I'm, I'm easy to find. Uh, just just Liz Collin on all uh, social media. And um, that's that's where I am now with Alpha News, who helped us produce uh, the, this documentary. And, and the documentary is available for free. So we want as many people to, to watch it as possible. It's on YouTube, on Rumble, uh, pretty easy to find. I guess I should ask in closing, how has this documentary changed your life? How has it changed my life? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I actually think that... Um, you ask very good questions, by the way. Um, I know I've, know I've said that already. I think that it's restored my faith in humanity a, a bit, that people still 
care about the, the, the truth. I, I think for, for years I was sort of uh, wondering if that was the, the case any anymore. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sad to see that, you know, there hasn't been much as far as getting these uh, officers out um, or, or more work there. That's obviously part of the, the legal system. But I, but again, I, I think we have nearly seven, or if not eight million people that have watched this already and people from across the, the country uh, because we're all paying the consequences uh, to, these di to, to this day. And I think this is an example of very poor leadership. Um, that that spread all all across the the country as well, and and you know people are are calling for change, which I think uh, is, is a good thing. Well, I want to thank you, Liz, because you are a courageous person, uh, and you are a truth telling person. And this constitutional republic will only survive if we have men and women of courage that are willing to go out there and tell the truth. So thank you so much for joining us here at the Staff Fast and Law Podcast. And ladies and gentlemen, I just want to thank you all for joining us and watching this episode of the Step Fast and Law Podcast. If you liked this program, please click the like button and share it with others. And until next time, steadfast and loyal. Before they burn it down.